As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your spirit and illuminate your words so that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for us as the branches of your son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And let your face shine on us in Christ that we may be saved. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on many of the pew Bibles at page 168. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible between Leviticus and Deuteronomy. We're going to consider a few different passages in light of uh, Christmas. If you didn't know it, Christmas is coming. Um, And so if I'm the first to tell you, don't panic. But um, I thought it would be good for us, as it's already been a month since we've been in the book of Mark, that we have already taken a break from that. And so I thought it would be good for us to start to think about uh, some text in connection with Christmas. And so, of course, I thought of Numbers 24 um, as a well-known Christmas text, but I hope it will be clear uh, why that is as we go along. Uh, So Numbers chapter 24, um, this is in the midst of the story about Balak, the king of Moab, and Balaam. You notice that in chapter 24 we're told that this is Balaam's third oracle, and that's where we're going to pick up our reading, and we'll read the entire chapter Numbers chapter 24, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces, and pierce them through with his arrows." He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you. But the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. 
Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and acknowledges the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Asher takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Katim and shall afflict Asher and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak also went on his way. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We're really looking at a story that began in chapter 22. Uh, Maybe the thing that is most familiar to us about the story of Balaam and Balak, the king of Moab, is that Balaam's donkey talks to him. Um, There's a a whole scenario. It's worth going back to chapter 22 and reading the whole story, uh, especially the conversation with his donkey, which is uh, a a wonderful piece of comedy by the Holy Spirit um, where uh, this happens. But Balak, king of Moab, has looked on Israel and has seen that they're too mighty for him to take in battle. He knows he can't fight against them conventionally, so he looks for a kind of unconventional weapon. He's hoping that someone can call down a curse on the people of Israel and help him to curse them so that he can defeat them in war. And he's heard of this guy named Balaam, who's kind of a a magician or a sorcerer or a witch doctor kind of guy from the east who can come and who's a professional curser. And so he decides, I should hire Balaam to come and curse the people of God. Uh, The only problem is the Lord comes to Balaam and says, I have purpose to bless this people, not to curse them. Um, And so Balaam being a kind of, one commentator wonderfully said, you should think of Balaam as a politician. He says whatever people want to hear. He rarely means exactly what he says, and he hardly ever says what he means. His word is not to be trusted until the Lord actually speaks through him. Uh, but he seems to determine to find some way to curse the people and to profit from it. And that's when he goes with their messengers to uh, pronounce, presumably, to find a way to curse the people of God. And the angel of the Lord is so angry with him that he appears before him with a drawn sword in his hand and is ready to put him to death. And his donkey sees the angel of the Lord and turns off the path the first time to save Balaam. Uh, The second time the angel of the Lord appears between two walls and the donkey squeezes past the angel of the Lord but kind of grinds Balaam into the wall in in the course of doing it. And he beats his donkey both times for doing these things. And the third time the donkey sees the angel of the Lord. He's standing in a road and there's no way past. So the donkey lays down underneath him. 
and he starts beating the donkey again, and that's when the donkey turns around and we're told in Scripture, says to him in a human voice, why are you beating me? Haven't I always been a good donkey to you? And it's, com- it's comedy because Balaam does not seem to be strict, think this is a strange conversation to have, and says, I'm so mad at you right now that if I had a sword, I'd kill you. You're such a bad donkey. Um, and then the Lord opens his eyes to see the angel of the Lord in the road, and the angel of the Lord says, if it wasn't for your donkey, I surely would have struck you down. Because I have purpose to bless this people. So you go, but you tell them exactly what I tell you to say. And so Balak thinks he's hired this magical cursor, and when the cursor sees the people and begins to pronounce, what he pronounces is actually blessings. Uh, Twice he blesses Israel, talking about all the things God has already done for them. And we're diving in now to the third of the oracles, the third of the times that Balaam speaks about God. That's where we are entering in. But if you go back to chapter 2 and do read the story, and I encourage you to do it, you'll see that the actual theme of the story is very easy to understand. The Lord has purposed to bless his people. And that purpose will not be revoked by anyone. That purpose will not be undone by anyone. And the Lord fulfills his purpose to bless his people. And what this passage wonderfully reminds us is the height of that blessing that God has promised to his people is the deliverance of a king. Um, A king like David and ultimately a king, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this passage is talking about the extent of the blessing that God promises to his people. And so we want to think about how the Lord fulfills his blessing to his people. And the first thing we see in this passage is the force of God's promise. The force of God's promise being highlighted for us here. Now, the second thing we want to look at is the fullness of God's blessing. As Balaam sees the future of God's people, we see the fullness of the blessing And then particularly, he highlights the future of God's king. And that's how we want to think about this passage together. So the force of God's promise, the fullness of God's blessing, and the future of God's king. The force of God's promise is wonderfully conveyed to us in this passage. Throughout, God makes it very clear um, all the way from back in chapter 22 that his purpose is to bless this people. He says to Balaam early on, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. This is God's divine purpose, to bless the people of God. Uh, The king of Moab wants them cursed, but from the very beginning, the Lord is on the move for his people, ensuring that they are not cursed. And this is the third time that Balak has attempted to get Balaam to be in a position to curse the people of God. And before, what Balaam has done is done big magic shows. Now, he's not a magician like magicians today that are sort of illusionists or sleight of hand. I hate to break it to you. They're not really, they don't really have magical powers. Um, they're illusionists, right? They do things, and we sit there going, how do they do that? Um, he's not one of those. He's, he's a magician in the, in the Old Testament sense, a sorcerer, someone who claims to have some kind of dark power. And before, he's made a big show of his dark power. He's had all these altars set up. He's had all these sacrifices offered at great expense to the king, king of Moab. And he's done all these things to look for omens and to search around to try to act like he's determining the will of the gods for what to do here. And we find in the beginning of this chapter, he gives all of that up. 
We're told here as, as chapter 24 begins that when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens. He gives up the pretense of doing these things. Um, even him, a sinful man, as he was, the Apostle Peter in Second Peter uh, 2.15 tells us that Balaam was a man who loved gain from wrongdoing. Even a man like him has now given up on any possibility of cursing the people of Israel. He knows that he can't do it. He gives up looking for these magical omens. He is unable to do what Balak has asked him to do. And what wonderfully the scripture does for us is gives us the theological explanation for what is happening here. Why does this magician give up on his magic? Why does he abandon any pretense that there's a possibility to pronounce any kind of curse on this people? It's because the Lord has resisted him. Interestingly, both Moses and Joshua give the theological explanation of what happens here. In Deuteronomy 23, 4 and 5, recounting this incident, Moses says, They hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. He wouldn't let you be cursed. He made sure you were blessed and turned the curses of your enemies into blessings. And why? Because he loved you. That's the truth of what's happening here. The Lord loves his people and therefore we'll see that they are blessed. Joshua in delivering the word to the, of God to the people at the end of his life says in Joshua 24, 9 and 10, Then Balak the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam the son of Beor to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Um, what is this a story of? It's a story of the Lord's love. The Lord's purpose to bless his people that comes out of his love that assures us that he delivers his people out of the hands of his enemies because he loves them. It was this love that promised, that prompted him to make this promise to his people in the first place. It was love that prompted him to make this promise to Abraham that he would be blessed. Remember that one of that first promises, covenant promises made to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What is the clear message to Abraham? It's a message of blessing, isn't it? Blessing is repeated so many times you can't miss it. I will bless you. That's the covenant promise that God makes. Um, and that he will be an opponent to those who are opponents to his people. Um, and this is a great illustration of that principle at work. Out of his great love, the Lord is intervening on behalf of his people to turn the curses of their enemies into blessings, to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, to show forth his great love for his people. And it's that point that finally comes home with force to Balaam at the beginning of verse 24. 
that it has pleased the Lord to bless Israel. This is the truth. And when he realizes this and then looks towards Israel in the wilderness, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Previously, he's received a word from the Lord that he's delivered to them. But here for the first time, we're told that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. Uh, The way it would rush on people like Samson to do mighty things. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him and he sees something that he's not seen before. He sees a vision of the people of God. A vision of their future that God shows to him and that causes him to speak. And he sees that future blessedness that awaits the people of God. <coughs> Excuse me. That's, that's what this blessing is really all about. Uh, this blessing is all about the future. The first two oracles were really recounting how God had blessed his people. Uh, this third one really talks about what God will do in the future for his people. It's a wonderful vision of the future and what God will do. But before we move on to consider that glorious future that's laid out, I think it's worth considering what we're taught here about God and how he defends his covenant purposes for his people. Um, We live in times where God's people are very worried about what the future holds for us. Um, Where a lot of people are worried about the world in which we live um, and the hostility towards the people of the Lord. Uh, and people wonder sometimes, I think, what will become of us. I think it's very common for parents to worry about their children and the world they will grow up in, for people to worry about their grandchildren and the world that they're going to grow up in. Um, and I think what this passage gives us wonderful comfort is this reminder that God has purposed to bless his people. God has purposed to bless his people. And the force of that promise will not be turned aside by anyone. Israel is completely unaware that this is going on. Where where are the people of God in this story? The people of God are down in the valley, totally unaware of the malevolence that's going on in the king of Moab and the machinations he's making to unseat God's people. They are completely unaware of what he's doing. But who is not unaware? God is not unaware. And God is seeing this purpose to curse the people that he is determined to bless. And he will not permit it. And when they try to curse, he turns it into a blessing. That's what makes the king so irate at the end of this third oracle. He said, look, I hired you for a curse. Three times we've gone to different places to look at Israel and try to curse them. And three times you ended up blessing them. It's exactly what I didn't want to have happen. And this should be a wonderful reminder to God's people that the Lord is on our side. And that the Lord has determined to bless his people. And it's the Lord who will deliver us out of the hands of our enemies. And the Lord will do it, not just because it's his purpose, but because he loves us. He's... he's, determined to bless his people because he's promised to do it out of his great love for his people. And that should be our encouragement. Even when we don't know what our enemies might be planning against us and we don't know what the future holds, the Lord knows exactly what our enemies are doing. 
And he not only knows what the future holds, he holds the future. And he determines it to the end that he has set for it. And that's why Balaam, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, can see the future that God has for his people. And it's not one of curse, it's one of blessing. That's the future that Balaam sees in this third oracle that's described for us beginning in verse 3, where he talks about how he's seeing this under the influence of the Holy Spirit and what does he say about God's people. This is the future, the fullness of God's blessing that he will send on his people. And we see this wonderful expression of what God's people are like. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, in verse 5, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. This is a wonderful picture of a planted place that's well watered, where everything growing there is strong and well supported. And this is what Balaam sees this people being. This people that's currently in the wilderness. Currently in the wilderness. Nowhere near any kind of well-watered area. But it's a reminder that God will move his people into a land that's fruitful. That's flowing with milk and honey. And he will plant them there. This is a wonderful picture of God's people being planted and sustained like strong trees growing by life-giving waters. And why do they grow like that? Because the Lord has planted them. It's the work of the Lord to establish his people, to make them blessed, to make them fruitful, to make them strong, to make them well-supported because they are the work of his hands. That's the future that Balaam sees for the people of God. They will be like these gardens, like these trees planted beside waters. Healthy, well supported by God himself. That's the future of God's people. And the scriptures continue to use that kind of imagery of the people of God, doesn't it? The blessed man from Psalm 1 is like a tree planted by waters. The righteous flourish in the courts of their God in Psalm 92. They continue to bear fruit in old age. Why? Because we are well supported. There's life-giving water from our God that runs to us. That picture is given to us in the heavenly Jerusalem as well in Revelation. We are planted by our God. That's why we are blessed. And God will do that for his people. And he will do that so that they increase and multiply in the world. Um, That's a wonderful blessing that he speaks about in verse 7, that water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. It's a promise that Israel will continue to increase and multiply. This had to be particularly disturbing to the king of Moab, who knew they were already too mighty for him. And he'd hoped that a curse might reduce them. But what does God say? No, they will continue to increase. They will continue to grow They will continue to multiply. God has continued to do that in the face of the enemies of his people to grow his church. It's our Lord's wonderful promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It will grow and it will be established. 
It will be established particularly in the king that's coming. This is the time when Israel was still under Moses in the wilderness. They did not have a king. But this was one of the great covenant promises that God had made to the patriarchs. He made it to Abraham. He repeated it to Jacob that kings would come from you. Genesis 17, he said that to Abraham. He said that to Sarah. He said that to Jacob in Genesis 35. Kings will come from you. And Balaam sees also a future of the kingship in Israel. He sees that in in verse 7 as well. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. There's a great kingship to be raised, a great kingdom that will be raised. And what will be the characteristic of this people under the leadership of the king? All of their enemies will be put down before them. Um, Israel will be established in the land. All of their enemies will be scattered before them. There's all this imagery of enemies being routed. He will devour his adversaries. He'll be like the, God will be for them like the horns of a wild ox, his, like a warrior who shoots his arrows through his enemy. God will do all of this for his people until they're settled in the land. And God says, and when they're at peace under their king, it will be like the king will be like a lion or a lioness that's down in its den. And what is that a picture of? When the king brings peace and puts all of his enemies to flight, you rouse that king at your peril. Just like you rouse a lion in its den at your peril. It's a picture of strength. It's a picture of strength that assures the peace of that kingdom. That really is the message here, not just this sort of bloodthirsty destruction, destruction. But what does all that destruction mean of enemies mean for the people of God? It means you're at peace. It means you're at peace from the enemies all around. That's the great promise of the future here, that God's people will live in peace. And that's why this is so infuriating to the king who wanted them cursed, because he says, all that's happened is you've talked about how prosperous they'll be, how fruitful they'll be, and how strong they'll be. Um, The blessing comes with a particular force at the end because it says, blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. What has the king of Moab been trying to do? Curse them. And what is the message from the Lord? You will be cursed by him on account of what you've tried. This is what he sees and he doesn't like it and tells Balaam, essentially, I didn't pay for this and I'm not going to pay for it. You can go home without anything. And Balaam tries to pretend that he's been an honorable man throughout. Hey, I just told you what God told me to say. Which is not really what he's been after the whole time. Um, Remember, he's a politician. He's not a man of integrity. Um, He's not to be believed. But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him again after they have this conversation to say, but I want to tell you more about the future of God's king. And that's really why we wanted to think about this in connection with Christmas, because what he sees here is something of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's partially fulfilled in David, but it's also fulfilled fully and finally in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that really is, I think, where we should focus our attention in this latter part of the prophecy. We don't have time to go through it, all of it, verse by verse, but it's that important vision of the future that Balaam has when he says, I see something else under the power of the Holy Spirit. Something that's going to happen in the latter days, which can simply mean in the future or it can mean in the last days. 
Um, it's a little unsure when we find that. It can sort of mean both, and I think here it does mean both. It means in the future days of the time of David, some of these things will happen. And in the final days when Jesus comes, the rest of this will happen. And I think it's good for us to see sort of two horizons of fulfillment being contemplated here. Because what Balaam is seeing in the future victory of this king is the peace that David will bring to the kingdom of God. That God will give him deliverance over all of God's enemies. And really a lot of the enemies that Balaam talks about here, enemies present and future for the people of God, would be defeated by King David. 2 Samuel 8.12 lists a lot of those same people that are listed here. Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek. David destroyed them all and ruled over their kingdoms and brought peace to the people of God by triumphing over them in the strength of the Lord. And these enemies, I think, have prophetic significance for the people of God beyond just being historical people in historical places. And some of that is drawn out for us in this passage. Who are the Amalekites? They were the first and the oldest enemies of God's people. They were the first enemy the one that came against Israel at Rephidim in Exodus chapter 17, where they fought against them. Remember when Moses' hands were up, they were winning, and whenever they drooped, it would go against them. That's who fought Israel there. They, were the fir- they called themselves the first of nations, but in the Bible, they're the first of the enemies. So they represent sort of the old enemy as they're recounted in Scripture. And then we have Edom, which is kind of comes to symbolize in Scripture the perpetual enemy. They also were one of the first to be against Israel in the wilderness, but they come up again and again throughout the word of God, and they take on this significance in the prophets of kind of being the perpetual enemy of God's people. And then you have Moab here and the Philistines in David's time. There's always a present enemy of God's people. And so in prophetic terms, when Balaam sees the victory of this king, what is he saying this king will triumph over? He'll triumph over the first enemy, That first of nations will be brought to utter destruction. He'll triumph over the perpetual enemy, Edom. They will be brought to destruction and dispossessed. And he will triumph over the present enemies, whoever they are. And when these enemies are gone and other enemies have replaced them, he'll triumph over those enemies too. It's a picture of what David does for the people of God. The first enemy, the perpetual enemy, the present enemy, the king puts them all down. That was the glory of David's kingdom. It was a kingdom at peace where God gave them rest from their enemies all around them. But we know that this is not a complete fulfillment because this peace didn't last. These enemies come up again. Other people prophesy in the scriptures about these same enemies. They come again. And so this star and this scepter that Balaam sees rising out of Jacob and Israel is not just David, but the greater David to come. I think David himself knew that he was not who everyone was looking for. Scholars have pointed out, if you look at Psalm 110, that great psalm of, I will make your enemies sit on your throne until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That, that psalm is, is shot through with the same kind of language we find in Numbers 24. And that was a psalm of David. Acknowledging that the Lord says to my Lord, 
sit at my right hand. There's another king coming. There's another star who will rise out of Jacob, another scepter who will rise out of Israel, who will do what David could never do, which is bring lasting peace to the kingdom of God. And that's really what Christ coming into the world is a recognition of by God's people. That one we were looking for who would finally bring peace to his people has come. And the wonderful glory of Christmas is not that he is far off, right? Balaam sees him but not near. He sees him but not now, right? It's a long time from now, from Balaam's day. And the glory of Christmas is the angels come and they appear to shepherds in the field keeping watch by night. And they say to them, unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Right, Balaam saw it not near, but the angel came to those shepherds and said, he's near. He's right there in the city of David. And Balaam said, I see him, but not now. And the shepherds were told, today is born to you this day a Savior. And who will that Savior be? He will be the great scepter that rises out of Israel and the great star that comes out of Jacob to do what? Bring victory to his people to bring them the blessing, to give them peace. Because when the king comes, he triumphs over the oldest enemy. Who is really the oldest enemy of the people of God? It's the devil. He's always been there behind every other enemy. He's the first, he's the oldest enemy. Christ triumphs over him by his cross. By dying on the cross, he removes the curse. He sets God's people free from the tyranny of the devil by his shed blood. He triumphs over the oldest enemy. He triumphed over the world in his death. The perpetual enemy that God's people face. All the present enemies that were arrayed against the Lord, he triumphed over by his cross. You see what we're being told here? The Lord is the one who will triumph. He is the star that will arise and give victory to his people. And he's assuring that all his people will be blessed. That's why he does not destroy all the enemies at his first coming. He destroys the greatest of his people's enemies. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death when he comes again. All the enemies will be destroyed. But what is he doing now? He's building his kingdom. So that others may come in and experience the blessedness that he gives. That others might be well established and planted by the Lord and might be increased as part of his kingdom and might be blessed under the exalted kingdom that he is building. And so we've not yet seen complete peace. There's not yet been the consummation of the kingdom that he inaugurated at his first coming. But what does he want his people to know? That star is reigning now. He wields that scepter now. That's, I think, why one of the last things he says to John at the end of the revelation is, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. You're not waiting for another star to arise, another king who will deliver a a temporary peace In a temporary kingdom, there's an eternal peace that I've won and that star is shining. That star is ruling and reigning now. That's the glory of Christmas. 
Our king is reigning. He's come. He's defeated our greatest enemies. He's taken up his rule, and he's coming again soon. We still behold him by faith and by the word of the Spirit, and he is not far, and he is near, and he is coming again soon. This is the hope that Christmas gives us. May we all believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and come into his light and know that the star has arisen and the scepter is reigning. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are to know that Jesus, who is the bright and morning star, is ruling and reigning now. And that he is the height of the blessedness that you promised to your people. We thank you that he has triumphed over our enemies and that even though the last enemy to be destroyed is death, he has triumphed over death as well by his resurrection. That he is the first and the last, that he is the living one and that he holds death and Hades in his hand. We thank you that he has taken up his reign, the assurance that you will bless your people. That of your great love you sent your son into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we pray that many would come into the light of his kingdom. We thank you for your grace and mercy that continues to shed the light of his kingdom abroad and invites all to be part of his kingdom. We know that everyone who takes refuge in him is blessed. But we also know that he comes in glory to judge the living and the dead. And so, Lord, we pray that all here who hear the message of this king who is coming uh, might seek him while he may be found to enjoy the blessedness and the hope of his kingdom and the love that you have extended to the world that might not find him to be the one who is against them when he comes. We pray that this Christmas might be a time when many hearts and minds are turned to the Lord Jesus Christ and that by your spirit they might see him for who he is we all would put our hope and trust in him and find life in his name. Hear us, for we pray in his name. Amen.